see wondrous things from your law, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Three scripture readings this morning. Romans chapter 4. I wanted to do one more Reformation sermon for you before we get back to Luke's gospel. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 8, excuse me. Romans 4, 1 through 8. This is God's word. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And then jump down to verse 14, verse 14 through 16. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And turn over to Romans chapter 10, just a couple pages over there, Romans 10, Romans 10, 1 through 4, Romans 10, 1 through 4, Romans 10, 1 through 4, this is God's word. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then one more passage, turn over just a few more pages over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verses 1 through 4. Galatians 5, 1 through 4. Galatians 5, 1 through 4. Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. May God bless the reading of this holy word. This morning's message, I want to bookend with an illustration I found in a Charles Spurgeon book. And I'm going to give the first part of the illustration at the beginning and then the second part at the end. Spurgeon wrote this. Do not attempt to touch yourself up and make yourself something other than you really are. But come as you are to him who justifies the ungodly. A great artist some short time ago 
had painted a part of the corporation of the city in which he lived, and he wanted, for historic purposes, to include in his picture certain characters well-known in the town. A crossing sweeper, unkept, ragged, filthy, was known to everybody, and there was a suitable place for him in his painting. And the artist said to this ragged and rugged individual, I will pay you well if you will come down to my studio and let me paint your likeness. And we'll get back to that at the very end. Presbyterians are confessionally bound to the five great solas of the Protestant Reformation. What this means is that every Presbyterian minister, when they take their ordination vows, are required to affirm that justification before God is by grace alone, that's the first one, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Question 33 of the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation really got going, when it got off the ground and began to spread everywhere and the Bible was being read everywhere and preachers were going out and evangelizing and they were building new churches and there were Lutheran churches and there was the the Reformation in Switzerland under Ulrich Zwingli and then the French reformer John Calvin, they were all discovering the great doctrines of the gospel all over again. The Roman Catholic Church responded very strongly and very negatively to that movement and they called a council in the city of Trent in northern Italy, which met periodically from 1545 until 1563, a total of 18 years, examining the doctrines of the Reformation. And when the hammer came down to close the final session of the Council of Trent, they declared officially that the gospel of Jesus Christ, foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures, proclaimed by the apostles and prophets, revealed in and by Christ, was actually heretical. Rome pronounced numerous condemnations upon the Protestant and Lutheran and Reformed heretics, which all end with a phrase they took out of Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, let them be anathema. And that phrase refers to eternal damnation under the curse of God in hell. Roman Catholicism has affirmed all of these statements that they made in 1564, all the way down to the present moment. It might surprise you to know that John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and yes, even Pope Francis had to affirm everything that I'm about to read to you when he took his oath of office to the papal throne of Peter. Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. Canon 12, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. I want you to think about what I just read to you. If you believe Jesus Christ can save you from your sins, if you believe that what he did on the cross is enough for you to be right with God and go to heaven, Rome says you are damned. Canon 16, if anyone says he will for certain, with an absolute and infallible certainty, have the great gift of perseverance to the end, unless he shall have learned this by a special revelation, let him be anathema. 
Canon 24. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not also preserved and increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let him be anathema. Canon 30, if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt of sin is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world through your own suffering or in purgatory through your own suffering before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Canon 32, if anyone says that the good works of the one justified are of such manner the gifts of God that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ does not truly merit an increase of grace and eternal life, let him be anathema. So if you don't believe that your good works get you into heaven, you're going to hell. That's never been changed, modified, repented of, deleted, since that was promulgated in 1564. And therefore, I say to you, in 1564, it was not the Reformers, it was not the Lutherans, it was not the Protestants who were condemned, but the gospel of Christ itself. The good news that relying on Christ's work is sufficient to save us was judged by Rome to be so erroneous that anyone who believed it was assured that they would go to hell. The one true gospel has always divided true believers from false professors of faith. Indeed, in what is perhaps the most heated letter of God-breathed scripture in the canon, the book of Galatians, Paul described his opponents who brought false teaching into those churches as false brethren. He calls them false brothers. Galatians 2 verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So are there people who profess to be Christians, and it turns out they're actually not? Yeah. There were in Paul's day. There were people like that in the churches that were founded by the apostles themselves. What's the difference between a true brother and a false brother? It's the gospel that they believe. It's what they believe, what they're trusting in to get them into heaven. You see, even in the days of the apostles of Christ themselves, there were lots of other gospels. There were lots of false gospels in the world. There were other Jesuses. There were Jesuses that wore that name, but they weren't the real Jesus. They weren't the true biblical Jesus. There were lots of other spirits, too. And Paul warned the church, warned the church at Corinth about all of this. In 2 Corinthians eleven three. he said, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You realize he's kind of insulting them by saying that. He's saying to them, you guys are so undiscerning, someone could come with a false gospel, you guys might all believe it. And might show that everything I did there was in vain. That's not very nice, is it? Paul is so mean. You read these, these letters? I mean, he let people have it. You guys might w- well put up with it. Paul and the other New Testament writers, they were well aware. There was false doctrine everywhere. It was on the rise in their own lifetimes. Jude had wanted to write about the gospel and write about other things. He says in his little letter, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I wanted to do that, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend 
earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. You hear what he's telling them to do? Fight for the faith, he's saying. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul, right out of the gate, told them in verse 6 of that letter that he was astonished, shocked. He says, I marvel how quickly you've lost the gospel. Have you ever noticed if when you read Galatians, as opposed to when you read Romans or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Colossians, Paul very often will start the letters with, we've heard about your great faith and hi to so-and-so and say hello to this person and you guys are doing great and your faith's being reported throughout the whole world. And this one is, I cannot believe how fast you lost the gospel. He tells them, Galatians 1, I marvel, I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Why does he say that? It's really not another? Because there's only one true gospel. There's only one true gospel. Other Jesuses, other spirits, other gospels which mimic Christianity have been in existence in every decade of every century of the church's entire existence. They were commonplace during the lifetime of the apostles. They are commonplace today. Opposing and fighting them, denouncing them, protecting the church from them, it's the task of all shepherds and all elders in Jesus' church. Now you might be thinking, is that really how the church has to spend so much of its time? Fighting? Fighting, contending, weeding out false teachers and false doctrine? defending the gospel from all of its competitors, identifying people as false brethren who say they're Christians and they're really not? And the, the sad answer to that is, yes, it is. The church has to fight constantly. If we take Scripture seriously, we do. Commenting on Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 3.13, where we're told that wicked men and imposters will grow worse and worse, John Calvin said, it is highly necessary for godly teachers to be reminded of this, that they may be prepared for uninterrupted warfare and may not be discouraged by delay or yield to the haughtiness and insolence of adversaries. Think about that. The haughtiness and insolence of adversaries. Is Calvin just being kind of, is he overstating that? The adversaries of the gospel, are they usually arrogant and full of themselves? Yeah, they usually are. In fact, the scriptures say they are. 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to God's word here. 2 Peter 2, 17. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Listen, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Really, they speak out arrogant words of flattery? Verse 19 of 2 Peter 2, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Jude Chapter 1, verse 16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of dishonest gain. You know, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was writing against Judaizers. What is a Judaizer? A Judaizer is someone who preaches a false gospel. They'll say nice things about Jesus, but then add all sorts of other things that you need to be right with God to go to heaven. One that I've identified to you before, I'm going to identify him again, N.T. Wright. Federal Vision speakers, Will, Steve Wilkins, Peter Lightheart, Rich Lust, Doug Wilson, Steve Schlissel, many others. I warn you about those people. They're false teachers. The names change, the nuances change, but it's always a rehashing of the same old thing. You know, I had a, a bunch more quotations, but I wanted to share just one with you from N.T. Wright in one of his newer books called The Day the Revolution Began. He said this, quote, We have paganized our understanding of salvation. Our understanding of salvation 
substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath for the genuinely biblical notions of we are about to explore. Okay, so the idea that God has wrath against sin and Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath, that's a pagan idea, but I'm going to tell you what the Bible really teaches. The idea that Jesus died in the place of sinners, N.T. Wright says, quote, is closer to the pagan idea of an angry deity being pacified by a human death than they are to anything in either Israel's scriptures or the New Testament. Wright rejects the concept of Christ satisfying divine justice against sin entirely. He has no, no concept of a substitutionary atonement whatsoever in his theology. He denies that our sins are imputed to Christ, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, denies it altogether. He says, quote, if we use the language of the law court, it makes no sense whatsoever to say that the judge imputes, imparts, bequeaths, conveys, or otherwise transfers his righteousness to either the plaintiff or the defendant. Righteousness is not a substance, an object, or a gas which can be passed across the courtroom. This gives the impression of a legal transaction, a kind of cold piece of business, almost a trick of thought performed by a God who is logical and correct, but hardly one we want to worship, end quote. He said this, quote, I must stress again that the doctrine of justification by faith is not what Paul means by the gospel. The gospel is not an account of how people get saved, end quote. Did you hear that? 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel by which you are saved. What did Wright say? The gospel is not an account of how people get saved. The Bible says, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel by which you are saved. We can multiply quotations from many other authors, but it's important that we look at Scripture. We want to hear from God on these questions. This is why I emphasize this stuff. Because at any given moment, there are defections from this going on all over the place. There are many doctrines of the Christian faith. You can get wrong and still be a Christian, but the gospel is not one of those. How sinners are justified before God is not a doctrine that we can allow for variation of opinion and allow people to have different nuances about. Err on what you trust in for your salvation and you've lost everything, your soul, heaven, all of it. And that's not something that people like myself just get into and are interested in. That's the apostolic position. That's what the scriptures say. The greatest enemies of the Christian faith who have done the most damage to the church, where do they always come from? Inside the church. They always come from inside the church. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. What an amazing passage. We're told where false teachers come from. They come from inside the church. And we're also told that they speak false things, perverse things. Why do they do that? To draw away disciples after themselves. They innovate and bring in crooked, perverse doctrine, not to edify, not to help or build up or encourage Christ's sheep, but simply because they want attention. They want followers. They want to draw away disciples after themselves, to look to them, to listen to them. Why is this so important? Faith alone. Why do we have that Reformation slogan, sola fide? Why do we have it on mugs and we have it on t-shirts? And why, why do we think that's so important? It's related directly to the holiness of God. Faith alone and the holiness of God are a vital concept. Listen, please. When Adam and Eve first sinned, when they first sinned, when they heard the sound of God coming towards them, what was their reaction? They were scared. They were afraid. And they'd probably never experienced that emotion in their whole life. They hear the sound of 
a physical manifestation of God coming towards them in the garden, and they're terrified and they hide. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus and his disciples were on a boat about to be destroyed by a violent storm, the disciples wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're about to perish? And Jesus rebukes the sea. Remember what he does? He stands up there, peace, be still. And, and it's as smooth as glass. Remember their reaction? It says in Mark 4, 41, they were terrified. They were terrified. When Jesus first meets Peter and tells him, go back out and throw the nets out one more time. And Peter, they've been fishing all night, all night long and hadn't caught a thing. He tells him, go back out into the water, put out a, your nets one more time. And Peter gets annoyed at him. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we'll let him down. So many fish are drawn in that it starts to sink two boats. And when they get back to the shore, what's Peter's reaction? I know what mine would have been. I would have said, let's sign him up for a fishing contract. What's Peter say? He says, go away from me. For I'm a sinful man. There's something holy about him. He, he knew this guy shouldn't be near me. When Moses requests to see the glory of God on Mount Sinai, the divine response, you can't look at me and live, Moses. No man shall see me and live. When Jacob wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord, in the morning after he dislocated his hip, he says, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. He was shocked to still be alive. When Samson's parents are met by the angel of the Lord, Manoah, Samson's father, says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. When Isaiah has his vision of Jesus on high in Isaiah chapter 6, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what exactly were these people experiencing in these moments? You see, we all normally feel fairly safe. I mean, when I woke up this morning, I mean, my thoughts were not, God is a threat to me. It was, let's get the coffee going. God's not a threat to me. He's not about to destroy me. I don't feel afraid. I don't feel like I'm in danger. But for some reason, when God and his glory ever got near anyone, Old Testament or New Testament, what do they all think was about to happen? We're going to die. He's going to kill us. Why? Because you can't be near holiness like that and not see how evil you really are. Why is the doctrine of justification so important? Because the doctrine of justification addresses what is it that is going to get us past the final judgment before this God on the day of judgment? We say faith alone because what we're really saying is it's Christ's righteousness alone that can meet his requirement. And that's where assurance comes from, understanding that. That's what I labor to make sure everyone within earshot of me understands. God's holiness is traumatizing. It's terrifying to fallen sinful human beings. When a sinner grasps the fact that the all-knowing, all-holy God can see right through them into their thoughts and their, their motives and their secrets, when we really get that, we're brought to spiritual desolation. This is what our Lord taught in his first great sermon. I remember preaching through the first third of Matthew's gospel many years ago and getting to the Sermon on the Mount. And most commentators think that his opening words, the Beatitudes, those are the first things Jesus ever said in public, in front of a crowd. The first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It was Jesus who taught us that the Holy Spirit of God was being sent into the world to do what? To convict the world of sin. That's why I pray for that every Sunday morning. God, do that. Convict people of their sin because if you don't do that, they're not going to see their need for Christ. They're not going to see their need for a Savior. When we see ourselves for what we really are and we see God in all of His holiness, all we can do is proclaim our spiritual poverty and mourn over our sin and then beg Him for mercy and forgiveness. And what's glorious is He always gives it. Anyone that sees their sin, repents and trusts in Christ, they will find God to be nothing but gracious. When the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery, then and only then are we ready for the sweet gospel truth. We're saved simply by relying on Christ alone, trusting in Christ alone. He, by his suffering and his death, has satisfied God's holiness, his justice against me, and his perfect life of law-keeping has once and forever made me right with God. Think about Jesus' life, his inner life, his holiness. Jesus never had a covetous thought, never had a covetous motion. He was never discontent, never had a lustful thought through all of his teenage years, never dishonored his parents, never lifted up his soul to an idol, never said a single thing that was false. That whole life of righteousness is put into our account before God. Nothing can ever be added to that work. And the moment we think we're adding anything or supplementing it or completing it, that's an insult to God. That's an insult to our Lord. Galatians 3.22, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe. Not to those who are working, but those who believe. Romans 3.19, now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you have any idea how relevant that verse is to our culture today? What does everyone have today in our culture? Is anyone actually guilty of anything today? Everyone's blaming someone else. What does the law of God say? Every mouth is stopped. God's divine hand has shut the mouth. No excuses will be allowed. And I'll tell you, if there's ever been a generation that needs to know that, it's mine and the one rising up under me. We are responsible for what we do. The sin I commit is not my mom's fault. It's not my dad's fault. It's not my friend's fault. It's not my church's fault. If I do things that are evil, God will hold me accountable. Every mouth is stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It really is this simple. If you repent and trust in Christ alone to save you from the penalty of your sins, you will be justified before God the judge. If you seek in any way to be right with God, even in part by your good works, you will be condemned on the day of judgment and sent to hell forever. Can I make that any clearer? Why, why do we not hear that very often today? Justification is by faith alone because justification is by Christ alone because only the righteousness of Christ can meet the standard of the holy God. There's only one righteousness that can do it, and it's Christ's. And that's why we call him our Savior. That's why we love him. That's why we're so thankful for him. That's why we emphasize that word alone. Always remember, it's not just a slogan, sola fide, faith alone, we're reformed, and we have Latin t-shirts and ball hats and everything else. What we're really saying is we trust in Christ's righteousness alone to get us to heaven. Aren't you thankful for him? That God would provide that to us? That Jesus suffered in all the ways that he did to achieve that for us? Galatians 5, 2, Paul... <laughs> 
He says, Galatians 5.2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Why is he saying that the way he is? You receive circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law. If you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Because coming to God means you believe in the all-sufficiency of what Christ alone did. And the moment we add anything at all to it, what we are, in fact, saying to God is that what your son did is not enough. And that's why Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing. You can't add anything to this. It's a finished work. People say they believe in Jesus, and they add one little thing to it, ritual circumcision. Paul says that's another gospel that can't save you. Christ would be of no benefit to you. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. If you're still there, let's look at that together. Or if you're not there, please turn to Romans 10, 1 through 4. Paul had such a passion, such a passion for Israel. He, he wanted so badly for his Jewish friends to come to know Christ. He worked so hard to that end. Verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 3 is the key there. You see it? Verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul prayed so hard for them. He prayed so hard for them that they would see the holiness of God, that they would stop trusting in their law-keeping, and that they would recognize they need Christ's righteousness to justify them. They didn't understand that. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, and because they were ignorant of it, what were they doing? Seeking to establish their own. Isn't that what all of man's religions do? Not knowing the true God, not knowing how holy he is, not knowing how sinful we are, being ignorant of his gospel or of a free justification, Instead, people are seeking to establish their own righteousness. Back up one chapter there to Romans 9.1. Here again, his passion for Israel, for the Jewish people. And this is why we ought to pray for them, pray for the Jews to come to know their own Messiah. He says in verse 1 of Romans 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know, he wasn't the first person to shed tears over lost people that he loved. We long for the salvation of our lost loved ones too, don't we? Our own countrymen, our own family, our own kids, they too are ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own. They're ignorant of God's holiness. They're ignorant of how deep the sin problem really is. And I would ask, why, why are we not ignorant of that? Because God enlightened our minds. God effectually called us. God showed us our sin. You see how arrogance and pride, they can have no place in us if we really understand these things. Ignorant of how deep sin is. And thus they don't see their need for Jesus' personal righteousness to get them into heaven. Romans chapter 4, back up to Romans 4. We'll walk through some of this here. Romans 4, 1 and following. Here Paul wanted to show, he was really had a burden to show that no one has ever been saved by keeping God's law. Abraham wasn't, David wasn't, none of us are either. And so he says in verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The first key principle that Paul hammers is this, and you can't miss it. If our works formed any, any part of how we got into heaven, then we would be able to boast, wouldn't we? He says that if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. This idea of being able to boast is excluded consistently throughout Scripture. It's done here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not by works lest anyone should boast, Romans 3, 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Abraham, had he been justified by his works, if he had gotten into heaven by being good, he'd have something to boast about. But what does the rest of the passage say? Look at verse 3. What does the Scripture say? And here he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and what is accounted to him for righteousness. So what did Abraham do now? Were there great works of charity and almsgiving and piety and personal holiness? No. Abraham believed God. He went from being an unbeliever to truly believing the promise of God. Yes, Abraham did not have the full details about exactly what Jesus would do or how he would come, but what he did have was sufficient. He understood that all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth would be blessed through one of his descendants. He knew that was going to happen. In fact, Jesus himself said Abraham was looking forward to his coming in John 8, 56. And you see the next phrase there? And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, what does that term mean, accounted? It mean, accounted. It's, a bank, it's actually a banking term, a legal term. It has to do with something being credited into our account. Righteousness was imputed. It was credited to Abraham when he believed in the promise of God. When a repentant sinner believes the gospel and trusts in Christ alone, God legally accounts that person righteous in his sight by imputing Christ's righteousness to their account before God. It's exactly like, like a judge who, once he's heard all the evidence in a case, he asks the defendant to rise and hear their verdict. And the judge will then say, you are justified and not guilty. Justification is a once-for-all judicial act of God, whereby we are cleared of all of our sins and accepted in God's sight as righteous, once and for the rest of eternity. It can never be undone. It can never be lost. Now look at verses 4 and 5, one of the most powerful, clear illustrations of this in the whole Bible. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Verse 4 here states clearly that <clears throat> the wages we receive for doing work are not counted as grace, but as debt. If we do work for someone and we've signed a contract, when that work is done, they've got to pay us what they agreed to pay us, right? They are now in our debt. Do we ever put God in our debt to get into heaven? No, we can't. If heaven were given to us for our good works, salvation would not be by grace, but it would be something we are owed. Scripture does not allow for a mixture of works and grace when it comes to being saved and justified before God. Who does God justify according to this passage? It's a remarkable teaching. It's, it's a teaching that so many people find so scandalous. According to the word of God, who does God justify in, in verse 5? You see it? Who justifies the who? The ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. You know, Rome... Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, man's religions, they say God only justifies those who work hard for it. Paul says God only justifies those who do not work for it. Man's religions say eternal life is earned by lifelong cooperation with God and good works. Paul says eternal life is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. 
Man's religions say that God will only justify those who are inherently righteous. And Paul says God only justifies those who are inherently unrighteous, ungodly. And here's how he does it. Look at verse 6 through 8. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You know, one of the greatest church fathers and theologians and writers, Augustine of Hippo, when he was dying, he had verses 7 and 8 chiseled into the wall next to his deathbed so he could just look at it and read it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Why will God not impute, why will he not charge my sin against me? He already charged it against Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being charged with all that guilt in our place. Christ's righteousness which he achieved by his perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments is a real righteousness, and God, by his authority, when we believe the gospel, gives us that righteousness, puts it in our account. I hope you can see the utter folly of believing that our works or our righteousness could ever in any way play a role whatsoever in our justification, any role whatsoever in getting us into heaven. The whole reason for the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ was this. If God is to show us love and mercy, our works can't play any role in getting us into heaven. Only Christ can do it. Christ has to do it all by himself. Someone else has got to enter into that broken covenant of works and achieve its requirements for us. Christians call Jesus their Lord and their Savior because he does all the saving. Abraham did not work, he believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, it seems one of the great mistakes, we see it over and over again in church history. It's happened many times in the you know, 20, 25 years I've been an elder in Christ's church. People are constantly trying to find ways to mix works with grace constantly trying to find ways to enter in something man does into the equation to get him into heaven. And it's just as wrong today as it ever has been. Now jump down to verse 14 of Romans 4. You see it? If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Think about what he just said there. If those who are of the law are heirs, what does he mean? Those who are of the law, those who are working, and by their working, they think they're, they're gaining a place of eternal life. They think that by working, by keeping the law, they're going to be an heir of eternal life. He says, if they are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. If they're actually going to go to heaven, God's promise means nothing then. Heirs of eternal life, that's what he means by that. God promised Abram long ago in Genesis 15, 6 that his spiritual descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Remember that scene in Genesis 15? He takes them out and says, look at the stars and count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. That's God's promise to save all of his elect people in Christ. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. The law of God was never intended to be the means by which we're made right with God. The law's primary purpose was to show mankind his sinfulness so that man would rest solely upon God's mercy in Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't like the law. We love God's law. The law of God is a gift to us. It's holy, just, and good. It's a huge blessing. But when it comes to getting into heaven, when it comes to being right with God, the law of God cannot help you at all. You know why we know that? Look at verse 15. You see it? What does the law do? The law brings about wrath. Why? Because we're sinful. 
We're sinful. And the law requires perfect obedience. Can any of us render perfect obedience to God? No. If those who are of the law are going to heaven, those who are trying hard to get into heaven by their works, if they're actually going there, faith is made void, the promise is no effect, because the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. What that means is that when God made the promise to Abraham, the law hadn't even been given yet through Moses. The point being, when the law was given through Moses to Israel and to the world, it did not change the promise. It did not change the nature of that promise in any way. Every person that ever went to heaven, went to heaven in exactly the same way. By trusting in the mercy of God alone. Not by works, not by keeping the law. So let's put the dime on the table. How are people saved in the Old Testament? By believing in the coming Messiah. How are people saved today? By believing in the Messiah who already came. Salvation has always been by faith alone, in Christ alone, either anticipated, if you were before he came, or us, we look back to what he did, and he gave us this to help remember him and what he did. Now, verse 16, last verse. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Okay, so think about what this means. It being justification, getting into heaven, being an heir of eternal life. Therefore, eternal life, getting into heaven, is by faith, so that it would be according to grace. If we get into heaven because of anything we do alongside of Christ, in addition to Christ, and instead of, or instead of Christ, then our salvation is no longer of grace, is it? It would no longer be gracious. And in fact, it would be something we're owed. It would be something that God owes us for our works, and we know that that's not possible. That can never be. But notice what else it says. What other glorious truth follows from this? See the next phrase in verse 16? So that the promise will be guaranteed. Therefore, it is by faith. It's not by anything we do. It's not by our works, by cooperation, not by righteous deeds that we do. It is by faith so that it would be according to grace, so that the promise would be guaranteed. So we could know we're going to go to heaven when we die. Not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Gentiles. Our salvation is guaranteed because it doesn't depend on us at all. Because salvation and heaven are achieved by Christ alone, and we simply receive him by faith alone, by trusting in him alone, it's guaranteed. It's sure. It's steadfast and certain. That same Greek word is used in Hebrews 6.19. This hope that we have of going to heaven, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That word steadfast is the same word from Romans 4.16. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And one which enters within the veil. God's promise to save his people is absolutely firm, guaranteed and steadfast. It is the anchor of the soul. Is Christ's righteousness and his cross, is that the anchor of your soul? When you think about death and dying and judgment? You know, I've had a lot of contact with people over the years. Especially once your stuff gets on the internet, you can get emails from anywhere. Have contacted me through email, electronically, who hear this teaching, who hear the biblical gospel, that we're saved by faith entirely apart from works. I've had many people ask, so you personally are really convinced and you really believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? To which I say, yes, I am. First John 5, 13, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, I know I have eternal life. And so many of them have responded by saying, how arrogant are you? How full of yourself you have to be to think you're going to heaven. To which it's my joy to respond, 
I know I'm going to heaven because God justified me by faith alone, in Christ alone. The death of Christ paid for all my sins. Christ's righteousness clothes me like a garment, and I stand perfectly righteous in the sight of God. I know I have eternal life precisely because it has nothing to do with me and how good I am or how faithful I am or how much fruit I have borne because if it did, I would not have assurance of eternal life. Think of Romans 4.16. Therefore it is by faith, so that it would be by grace, so it would be guaranteed. You know you have eternal life. You think you're going to heaven. How arrogant are you? No, it's because I know how horrible I am, and my confidence is on someone else, Christ. That's why I know I have eternal life. And yes, if I believe what you believe, if I believe that by my works or my fruit or this or that, Is the only way I can get into heaven? Yeah, I wouldn't have any assurance either. But it's by faith, not by works, not by sanctification, not by putting sin to death, not by pursuing holiness. It's by faith so that it would be according to grace, so that it would be guaranteed, so it would be sure. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is a promise you can take to the bank. Will the wrath of God destroy me on the day of judgment? No. Why? Because Jesus has justified me by his blood. His shed blood already made satisfaction to God for the wrath against all my sins, and therefore I will be saved from the wrath of God through him. Remember the illustration? That painter, wanted to get, he wanted to paint a portion of the city, and he wanted to get some of the characters that were always in the picture, and he talked to the the street sweeper, the guy that was always filthy and covered with with dirt and and always dressed terrible. He said, I want you to meet me down in my painting studio. I want to paint you. And so the street sweeper shows up in the morning, but he was soon sent home by the painter because he had washed his face and combed his hair and donned a respectable suit of clothes. He was needed for the picture as a beggar and was not invited in any other capacity. Even so, the gospel will receive you into its halls if you come as a sinner, not otherwise. Wait not for reformation, but come at once for salvation. God justifies the ungodly, and that takes you up where you are now. It meets you in your worst estate. Come in your disabilities. Come to your heavenly Father in all of your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you are now. I put it in the language of the text, and I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, Him that justifies the ungodly. I'm very thankful the God I worship is a God who justifies ungodly people. Because if he wasn't, I would go to hell. Spurgeon says, he makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Reader, do not delay. 
until you have well considered the matter. It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we are so thankful. You are the God who justifies the ungodly. We bless your name for it. Not by negating your own righteousness and your own holy nature, but by sending Christ to render full satisfaction, that terrible ordeal he suffered, to redeem us from the curse by being cursed in our place, to receive us as righteous in your sight by dressing us in the pristine, seamless, spotless robe of his perfect life of law-keeping righteousness that is imputed to us. We rest upon Christ and only upon Christ, and we lay hold of him by belief, by faith, alone.